This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Colossians 1, 1 through 12. Colossians 1, 1 through 12. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which come, <clears throat> excuse me, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Ephraim, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Bill. If you open your Bibles, they will probably naturally fall to Ephesians, right? <laughs> but today we start a, a new series, and I am blessed to be able to bring that to you, the book of Colossians. So take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and open to Colossians. And... Um, Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in this series, shall we? Well, Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us to gather and worship you, to celebrate communion. We thank Chuck for the word he brought to us about what our Savior did, his willingness to bear our penalty and go to the cross and die in our stead. Father, how could we ever, ever, ever give you enough praise and honor and thanks for that event? And thank you for calling us into a oneness in a relationship with you, the living God. So, Father, as we look at your word, your holy word this day, we just pray you just um, open our hearts to receive it, that you would speak through me, 
your blessed word to each of our hearts. And we just thank you for the time we have together to share together. In his wonderful name we pray. Amen. You know, as we look at the book of Colossians, the first thing I notice about it right there in the first two verses is this is a letter. This is a letter from Paul to the people in Colossae. Now, in our modern day and age, we don't write many letters anymore, do we? I mean, how many of you have written a letter? Actually, written a letter, Nola, in the last week. I am so proud of you, too. <laughs> yeah. Some of you know uh, Johnny Rowe. Johnny worked for me for about five years. He's John and Angie's son. He's now at the CHP Academy. And what a great young man. But Johnny never learned to write because his family moved from Cottonwood up to Reading when Johnny was between first and second or second and third grade, I don't remember which. But in Cottonwood, they taught writing in third grade. When he got up to Reading, they taught writing in second grade. And so Johnny never learned to write. And um, so I was sharing that with him that, you know, Johnny, you need a skill. You know what he did? He went down to Barnes and Nobles and he bought himself a handwriting book and he taught himself how to write. And he practiced and he practiced and he practiced. And that Christmas, he wrote us a beautiful Christmas letter about a paragraph long, about that much. And it was just beautiful, you know. And I said, Johnny, that was really nice. Thank you so much for your note. How long did it take you to write that? He said, it took me about two hours. <laughs> but he kept practicing at it, kept practicing, and he has beautiful penmanship now, and he can write a letter. But anyway, I digress a little bit as a way of introduction that we just don't write letters. We text or we do emails, but to sit down and actually write out a handwritten letter is a rare thing. My dad, when I was growing up, started writing me letters when I was about two years old. And I have a collection of about 75 letters that my dad wrote me from the time I was two until I was in college. And then for some reason he quit. But you know what's wonderful about a letter written by hand is that it, it expresses where that person is at at that moment in time, but it's also you actually get to see the person's writing. And when I hold one of my dad's letters, he held that piece of paper, even though he's been dead for 20 years, he actually held that piece of paper and he cared enough for me to write me a personal letter. And so I think in thinking about, how'd that do that? There we go. A letter usually is a message from a sender conveying some concepts or ideas to edify the receiver. That's generally why we write a letter to somebody. The IRS does not do that when they write you a letter. But friend to friend, and usually the sender and the receiver have some sort of personal or business relationship, a connection that gives the sender some authority to send the letter. How many of you have ever written a letter to somebody you don't know? 
Well, in this case, Paul is writing a letter to somebody he doesn't know. You ever realize that? Let's take a look. The city of Colossae, now if I do this right, okay, there we go. The city of Colossae is right here. Now, prior to biblical times, Colossae was on two major trade routes, and it was known for uh, the trades primarily in wool, a very prosperous city. But then the trading routes got moved to the north, up this direction, right through here, headed over toward Ephesus, which is right there, and then further off to the east. And so by biblical times, Colossae had lost its importance as a, a major trading center. The city was basically going downhill, okay? So it was not a major metropolitan kind of thing like Rome or Philippi or Ephesus or some of the other places that we're familiar with. So, in fact, the tell here, this is the ancient city of Colossae. It had they haven't even excavated it yet. That shows you how important it is. You know, it's just, it's just there waiting for somebody to put a shovel in and find out what's under that tell. And in the area, um, this is Thessalon, uh, um, I'm sorry. I lost it, uh, I'll think of it a minute. This is another one of the cities in the general area where the, um, the trade moved to, and so you can see the influence of Rome and everything was in that area, but it just simply was not happening in Colossae. So it's basically a backwater town, much like maybe kind of where we live, maybe Millville and something like that, not terribly important. So Paul, as he, these are the, missionary trips of Paul, and Colossae's not on there. And um, basically, it would sit right about where the U is, right there, because Ephesus is right over here. And so Paul went all around it, and it's about 100 miles from Ephesus to, to Colossae. And Paul was in Ephesus two, two and a half, three years or so, debating and arguing and sharing the gospel. And so his influence was certainly in that area, but he was never at that town. So how does he come to write the letter? And this is where the story of Colossae, I think, really becomes interesting. Well, Paul, before I get there, he acknowledges as such in chapter two, verse one, where he says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for all those in Laodicea, that's the other town I couldn't think of a minute ago. Those ruins I showed you are from Laodicea. And for all those who have not personally seen my face. So we know from the text, we know from the book of Acts, Paul simply never was in Colossae. So how did it come about? It's an amazing part of the story of what God does. And it has to do with this man. Now, obviously, this is not the man, but I chose this to represent this face, to represent Epaphras. Because all these things we read about, these are real people. And for me, it helps to put a face with the story of what this man did. And look with me at uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. That Bill read for us. And Paul writes, 
We give thanks to God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, praying for you always. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love for which you have for all the saints. Now, see what Paul is saying. Don't miss this. He's saying, since we have heard of it, okay? Since we've heard of your love of Jesus Christ and for all the saints, because of the hope that is laid up in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So now what he's acknowledging is you have heard the word of truth and I have heard of your faith. And then verse six, which has come to you just as in all the world, also constantly bearing fruit, increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learn it from Epaphras, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bond servant. Now what he's acknowledging there is that Epaphras is a bond servant of God. The, the translation is actually a bond slave. Epaphras is sold out to God. And he has shared the gospel with some people in Colossae. And that has become a small little church. And the faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the spirit. And for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what has happened here is this Epaphras, this man of God, who has taught the people in Colossae. Now, he may have heard it from Paul over in Ephesus. We don't know that part of the story, but what we do know is that he shared the gospel with some people, and that ended up becoming a church, a work in a small little backwater town. A bond slave, a faithful servant, and he informed us, meaning Paul and those that are with him there in Rome, of what's going on. Now, some scholars have, in my background reading for this series, <clears throat> some have argued that the letter may have been written in Ephesus when Paul was in prison there. However, most people, based on a whole bunch of things, most scholars believe that Paul's in Rome and Epaphras gets to Rome. Now, let's take a look at this. This is how far... Now, now, we're talking about a time where there's no jets, gang. Okay, Colossae is over here, obviously. There's Ephesus. Now, there's about 100 miles right there. Then from there, you got to go to Corinth, and you slip across the little peninsula right there, and you get on another ship, and you go all the way up to Rome. So I did some background research of how long would this take Epaphras to get to Rome. It would basically, average, you could walk a regular person, three and a half to four miles an hour. So you can travel in a day, if you've got, say, four miles an hour, time, and you walk for eight hours, eight, 16, 24, 32 miles, if you do it right. So to cover that distance of 100 miles walking, you're looking at parts of four days. Now, a ship in ancient times with a good wind can make 100 nautical miles a day. So if you take off, you've got 1890 kilometers or 
1180 miles to get from there to there. So if you take off, if you just round it up and you say, okay, it's about 100 miles. So you got about 1,100 miles of sailing to do to get up there. So how long is that going to take? Well, that's going to take another 20 days. So you're looking at somewhere around a month to make this voyage, assuming some rest time, some downtime, and some not favorable winds and things like this, to get all the way from Colossae all the way to Rome. How many of us are willing to make that kind of commitment to understand the clarity of the gospel so we can share it with somebody else? And, and we're not talking safe travel here. You know, there are all kinds of robbers and, and the threats at sea, storms, and all kinds of things like that. But, to, but Epaphras is so concerned about his church and what is going on that he's willing to undertake this kind of journey to ask Paul for advice. That tells me something about Epaphras because the scriptures talk about a wise man seeks what? Godly counsel. And so he doesn't know exactly the answer to some of the questions and he's willing to make this trip out of concern for those that he loves back in Colossae. So then as we move on, let me get my notes here so I don't, it's always good to follow your notes whether you need them or not. So what, did, what was the message that he gave to Paul? What did he share about the church? Well, as you unpack the letter, which we're gonna do over the next month, several things come out and basically it can kind of be summed up in Weston's drawing. What Paul is concerned about is that what is being shared by Epaphras about what is going on in Colossae, that there's some heresy going on in the church, influences. And Colossae at that time was a multicultural setting, if you will. You had a Roman influence, you had the previous Greek influence, you had a Jewish population there also, and then you also had just some barbarians in the whole general area that believed in a whole bunch of things. Well, as we look, as we look at the letter, these themes show up. And the first one right here is that spiritual things are good, but matter, things around us, our physical bodies included, are evil. That was one of the things that was creeping in and people were asking questions about that. How do you address that? Is that true or not? Then he, he looks at one must follow rituals and restrictions to be saved. Well, that's not a real uncommon heresy even to this day that somehow we need to work for our salvation. And this, from what Epaphras shares with Paul, this is one of the things Paul ends up addressing. We also look at one must deny the body and live in strict asceticism. I can't say that, but it basically means total self-denial. You know, you just got to really live in self, even starve yourself to death to somehow become holy and acceptable to God. That was another one was sneaking. And if you really think about that, that's another works doctrine. This is what I'm going to do to be acceptable to God. And then angels must be worshipped. 
Now, in those days, there were stargazers, and they believed, many did in pagan cultures, that the stars were actually angels that were residing up there, and those angels could affect the affairs of men and women, and if you did not worship those angels, very seriously, bad things and consequences could happen to you. So this was a prevalent thinking as well. This still goes on in different forms, and I'll share as we move into this a little bit later about a temple up by Mount Shasta that's really interesting about that put there by the keepers of the blue flame. So stay tuned. One must obtain secret knowledge not available to all, and you must do certain things. Again, it's a work thing. You must understand certain things to really have a chance to have an eternal life. One must follow human traditions and wisdom. Well. We're gonna see a couple examples of that later in this message, but, and then it's best to combine all this kind of stuff, you know, just kind of coexist thing. And then there's nothing wrong with immorality. And uh, certainly that is a uh, philosophy that some still have and uh, put out there. Now, what Paul does, he's going to address all this stuff, but he's going to do it in kind of three major sections of the book. And they fall out like this. The first part that is right there in chapter one, he's going to share how to pray for one another. And, and the prayer is specific in that we, as we all know, are involved in a spiritual warfare. We just celebrated communion and Chuck did a really nice job of sharing that even though we may be saved, and those of us that have trusted Christ as our savior certainly are saved, but still we pick up some dirt. We live in a fallen world and we have a sinful nature that still desires to do a sinful, selfish thing. And we need to ask forgiveness for that kind of thing. And we need to pray for one another. This church spends a lot of time praying for one another. And that is really a good thing. And, and uh, Paul gives us some instructions on how to do that. The second thing is in Colossians is probably the clearest description in anywhere in scripture of the sufficiency and the wonder and the holiness of our Savior Jesus Christ. It is a beautiful dissertation on who our Savior is and what he's done for us. And you cannot help but look at these passages that we're going to in a couple weeks and just marvel at Jesus Christ and his sufficiency in every aspect of life. And finally, he's going to share with us that if we proclaim Christ as our Savior, then we're called into his family. And like any family, there are certain rules of conduct that magnify or, sh or show the world that we belong to that family by our behavior. And we all have, we all have family traditions, things we do. And we pass those down generationally to other, others. Making homemade ice cream is really a big one in our family. Okay, if, if you don't do that, you just sort of aren't part of it. You know, but 
you get the drift, okay. What does our style of life look like? He's gonna instruct us guys, he's gonna instruct us girls, he's gonna instruct us as families, how we interact with one another within the church, all these kind of things. And that is critically important because we are his story. And if others are going to come to know the Savior, chances are they're going to see something different in your life and in my life because we live in the family of God. That is not a works kind of thing, as I'll show you in just a minute. That is a change of mind, change of every aspect of your being. It's not like I've got to go do this and in my flesh I'm going to go do it. Uh uh. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, all things become new. Old things are passed away. And you are a new creation in Christ. The way you act, the way you think, what your values are. If you've not experienced that kind of thing in your life, chances are maybe you're still playing church and don't have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And you're the only one that can answer that question. So what Paul does as he works through this, he draws a line that Weston so well illustrated in our bulletin. And it's this. He desires us to live in a different plane, a different level, God does. When he calls us into his family, old things have passed away, and he wants us to live in the light of his kingdom. Be kingdom-minded. Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. Remember those verses that are like that? Not in the kingdom of darkness of this world. This world is fading away. It's perishing. Our bodies are perishing. The world around us is crumbling. And we can, and, and there's just, it's just, if you don't maintain your house, it falls apart because it's a world crumbling in death, brought about by the curse because of our sin. Paul says it another way. He wants, you, he wants us to be the true church and not just play church. Okay? Now, we all, probably everybody in this room has some experience of where a church is caught up in some sort of controversy. You know, I'm aware of a church down south that fractured because of a different style in worship that they were one and now they're two because they couldn't agree on the style of worship. That's playing church. God doesn't really care about that. What, he said, what does God say is the greatest of all the commandments? That you love the Lord God with all your mind, all your heart, and all your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. John talks about in 1 John that God is love. And if we are a part of his family, then love is what manifests itself across the board. Why does Paul write in Philippians, consider the needs of others more important than yourself? Have this attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus. Why? What we just celebrated this morning, what Chuck shared with us is that Christ left heaven above to come live on the earth for a purpose, one singular purpose, and that was to go to the cross. 
our creator, yours and mine, that molded you in your mother's womb, went to the cross to die for you. And he's bought us with a price, the price of his blood. And so he says to us, you are my ambassadors. Go live out my life. And that life is a life of sacrifice, considering the needs of others more important than yourself. Why does the church fracture because they can't agree in the style of worship? It's because these people are entrenched and want it their way, and these people are entrenched and want it their way. There's no other way to cut that. And they may say, we're right, and they're going to say, we're right. And what happens is the testimony is a bunch of believers can't get along. God says that if you love me, you keep my commands, but the spirit of unity is the spirit of the real church, not fracturing. Give me an illustration. I always have my bag of tricks, right? This is where Joy gets really nervous is when I do this. But she's teaching today, so I can get away with it. Okay, remember the old basketball from way back, you know, perspective? Okay, I'm going to hold it up. Now, would everybody agree that's a basketball? All right, we're not going to argue about that. However, if I hold it up here, you people on this side see a face. Okay, you people on this side see a face. Katie, how would you describe your face? My face? No, no, this face. <laughs> yeah, let's go with your face. I like it. This is better than I thought. This face. That's a happy face. Would you agree with that? That's a happy face? No. Okay. See, what we've got a relative truth here, don't we? We don't agree with them. We disagree with their agreement. Are you going to make this hard? <laughs> All right. Here, here's the point. We have a relative truth going on here. You people over here, with the exception of Uche, everybody on this side basically says, this is a happy face, okay? And over here, this is kind of a, a shocking face, or you know, I'm really upset or something like that. That's a relative truth. This is like we just shared, I want my worship this way, that's my truth, and I want worship this way, this is my truth. Here's what God has called us to. What happens when I drop this ball? What's gonna happen? It's going to drop. That's true truth. You know why? Because gravity is something God put there, and it is always going to be there, regardless if you think it's a happy face or a sad face, right? God wants to live us, have us live there, not in these kind of things. Okay, let me show you another one. You ready, Glenn? Okay, how many balls? One. All right. You know how to juggle? Okay, thank you, Larry. Okay, one ball, right? Okay, <clears throat> now, Glenn just gave me another ball. How many balls? What if I don't feel that I have two balls? What if I really want to feel like my cup is overflowing, and I have three balls. Where's true truth? Is it based on my feelings, or is it based on reality? It's based on reality. 
Where do we live today in America? We're living in, in feelings. If I feel I want to be a girl today, I can be a girl. And I can be three, okay? Even though I'm really only two. You know what, you know, I'm a biologist by training. I took a lot of genetics. <laughs> and I want to tell you something about that. Every cell in your body, if you're a male, is wired for a male. Every single cell, whether it's a brain cell or a fingernail cell, it's all got the same DNA. It is male. And same with you girls. Every one of you girls has got girl genes. And I don't care how many times people try to tell me I can feel like a girl. There is no way that I could get inside a girl's emotions. It can't happen. It simply can't happen. And I may feel it, but you know what? That's lunacy when you believe something that is absolutely not true. And, and in our culture now, people are saying there is no true truth. But one plus one is always going to be two, no matter how much I feel it's going to be different. And if I drop the ball, it is going to fall. That's true truth. That is where God wants us to live. Because what did Jesus say about himself? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. That's where we camp, see? We camp on truth. And we can camp on, thanks, Glenn. We can camp on true truth every single time and stay away from relative truth. And that's the plane that Paul is telling the Colossians, this is where you're to live. And it's where he's telling us in the book of Colossians, in the book of Colossians, this is where I want you to live. Don't get wrapped up in whether it, and split over silly things. But be the true and living God. Share the gospel with your life with a spoken word. Know the scriptures. Study to show yourselves approved. Workmen that need not be ashamed. Does that make sense? One final thought. This guy took upon himself to go seek counsel. He traveled 1,180 miles over land and sea to do it. He had no idea what that journey would result in. That Paul would write a letter back to a little sidewater town that was decreasing in importance, that he'd never been there because of his commitment. He said, Paul, I need your help. But the wonder of that story is because of his commitment, Paul wrote that letter and God preserved it 2,000 years for us to have. Is that not amazing? What it says to me is that man, that man, whatever he looked like, but that man did something that God used. He never knew 2,000 years later, I would stand before you and tell you his story, God's story. So what does that say for each one of us? We don't know, 
the little thing we might do, the little thing we might share, the one little person we might help down the road. How is God going to use us in his story like he did Epaphras? We have his evidence, but I proclaim to you that in the kingdom, you're going to see, if you're faithful to present his truth, you're going to see the difference it made. God's going to share with each one of us what he did through your life. And say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's his promise, isn't it? Well done. Sit with me at the table. Let's share this meal. Welcome home. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Mm. Thank you for the wonder of this little book. And Father, as we, <laughs> as we just explore it in the weeks ahead, just bring it alive to us, Father, that we might just uh, see what you're saying, that we might live out your truth in realistic ways and that others would see you through us. And not that we would be glorified, but you would be glorified through us. So thank you for choosing us to share your good news and be a part of your story. Father, may we just sing our praises as Paul and the team comes now with our hearts just overflowing of gratitude and love for you. And we thank you in your Savior's name. Amen.